Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, March 7th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A fire blazes through a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. China announces an increase in military spending. A pro-Russia official claims Ukraine is preparing a counterattack in Zaporizhia. Taiwan warns China's military may make a sudden entry into its territory. Texts reveal the UK's former health minister aimed to frighten Britons into lockdown compliance. Iran agrees to more joint nuclear site inspections. 35 are arrested after clashes at a proposed Atlanta police training center. Nine security officers are killed in a suicide attack in Pakistan. Trump delivers the closing CPAC speech. California announces it will end business with Walgreens over abortion pill issues. And nearly 200 nations agree to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. Our top story ablaze in Bangladesh as a fire destroys a Rohingya camp, leaving 12,000 homeless. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, NPR Online News, Al Jazeera, Washington Post, and The Guardian. On Sunday, a large fire ripped through a Rohingya refugee camp in Cox Bazar, Bangladesh, destroying at least 2,000 shelters and leaving as many as 12,000 refugees without housing. As of Sunday, the cause of the fire was unknown and no casualties were reported. The UN Refugee Agency stated that 90 community facilities, including hospitals and learning centers, were also destroyed, while local superintendent of police, Mohammed Mafuzal Islam, said those affected would be sheltered temporarily in community centers and mosques. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees provided no further details other than that Rohingya refugee volunteers were responding to the fire in the Balukali camp at Ukiah, with the agency staff and its partners backing their efforts. The area where the fire occurred is hilly and has made it difficult for families to escape to safety and for rescue operations to locate the missing. The accommodations typically house four to five in a family unit and are mostly populated with women and children. UN agencies and Bangladesh officials are currently assessing the extent of the damage to the camp to determine how many homes will need to be rebuilt, with estimates that recovery could come to a fast process, depending on the availability of funding. The Bangladesh Defense Ministry last month issued a report stating that 222 fire incidents took place in the Rohingya camps from January 2021 to December 2022, including 60 cases of arson. Those were the facts, and during this podcast, we extract the spins, and our first one for this story is Narrative A, coming from Washington Post. The suffering of the Rohingya people is indescribable. The accommodations and conditions of the camp have been appalling. And now the fire has destroyed countless homes and businesses, leaving people to face homelessness and uncertainty. Life can only improve in the camp if recovery includes homes made of more substantial and sturdy materials like steel and brick. And Narrative B comes from The Diplomat. Following the five-year mark of refugees inhabiting Bangladesh, the government is coercing the refugees to return home. The National League for Democracy-led government and the Myanmar State Administrative Council have failed to secure a safe and humane environment in the Rakhine state. The Rohingya people want nothing more than to leave the barbed wire, subpar encampments, and return home, but there are no safe options to do so. Narrative C is being provided by Dhaka Tribune. This tragedy was about to happen, and that was exactly why Bangladesh was urgently asking for help from all relevant stakeholders to achieve a lasting solution to the Rohingya crisis. 
Bangladesh is a small, highly populated country that faces already several other challenges. So the continued presence of more than 1 million displaced people is neither reasonable or sustainable. In the uh, industrialized world, we take uh, firefighters for granted, you know, just thinking they're just sitting around eating chili and playing foosball. And, and they are doing that, but that's not all they're doing. I mean, think about how important it is when you need them. Absolutely. In terms of this housing crisis, I'm seeing a lot of people um, repurpose shipping containers. Yeah. Making like modular homes out of right, them. Right, yeah. right. Wouldn't it be really hot in there? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, it would definitely have to be modified. I'm sure these people are cooking on open fires, you know, with loose wood. Right. It's basically yeah. a tinderbox. That's it really so is. frightening. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Turning our attention to China as they announce a military spending increase. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, CNN, Financial Times, France 24, and Voice of America. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang has announced a rise in the nation's military spending by 7.2%, and an official GDP growth target of about 5% for 2023. The news opened the Chinese Communist Party-led parliament's annual meeting on Sunday. China's economy is staging a steady recovery and demonstrating vast potential and momentum for further growth, the outgoing leader said. The gathering of the National People's Congress, which has drawn almost 3,000 delegates to China's capital, Beijing, will take place until the end of the week. Goldman Sachs has reflected that the GDP target was not challenging given China's poor economic performance in 2022. If Beijing hits the target, it will still indicate a recovery from the growth of 3% seen last year amid a strict zero-COVID policy that has only recently been reversed. The announced budget plans put defense spending at 1.55 trillion won, or 225 billion U.S. dollars, with Kituang telling the NPC that external attempts to suppress and contain China are escalating. He added, the armed forces should intensify military training. The news comes at a low point for diplomatic relations between China and Washington amid continuing tensions over the sovereignty of Taiwan. Though the U.S. military budget still greatly outstrips Beijing's at over $800 billion for 2023, experts believe Chinese spending may be far more than officially declared. Apart from having the world's largest army and largest navy, China has recently launched its third aircraft carrier and, according to the U.S., has the largest aviation force in the Indo-Pacific region. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-China narrative from the Global Times. Sunday's announcement reflects confidence in the economic recovery of Beijing. China is set to return to its place as one of the fastest-growing major economies globally, despite the downturn expected across the rest of the world. The anti-China narrative comes from Washington Post. China has shown its hand with a modest growth target, revealing that leaders are aiming to avoid missing their economic goal for a second year running, even if it means less of an overall boost to a flagging global economy. Beijing is making a slow recovery following the politics of COVID. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's at least a 50% chance that China's GDP will be at least $16.1 trillion in 2023. Day 376 of the fighting in Ukraine as Ukraine prepares a counterattack in Zaporizhia, according to a pro-Russia official. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, the Institute for the Study of War, MSN, and Ukraine Forum. 
Ukraine has amassed upwards of 30,000 troops in the Zaporizhia region in preparation for a spring counteroffensive, a pro-Russia official in the region claimed on Monday. Vladimir Rogov, a Ukrainian who serves in Russia's administration of Zaporizhia, one of four regions Russia claimed to have annexed last year, said, If we speak about the numerical strength of militants along the engagement line, there are a total of about 30 to 32,000 of them there. He added this obviously suggests that this attempted offensive will take place in late March, early April. Meanwhile, as fighting for control of the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, known in Russia as Artyomovsk, continues, U.S. military think tank the Institute for the Study of War assessed on Sunday that Ukrainian forces are likely conducting a limited tactical withdrawal from the city. However, it added that it is still too early to assess Ukrainian intentions concerning a complete withdrawal. Ukrainian officials have not given any public indication of plans to withdraw at this stage. Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense on Monday, told reporters that if Bakhmut were to fall, it would be of more symbolic than operational importance. The fall of Bakhmut won't necessarily mean that the Russians have changed the tide of this fight, he added. Ukrainian officials said that one civilian had been killed and five more injured in Russian attacks on Bakhmut in the past day. Meanwhile, three civilians were reportedly killed in Russian attacks on Kherson. Attacks were also recorded in the regions of Sumy, Kharkiv, and Mykolaiv, as well as Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, with no reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Ukrainian officials added that they had shot down 13 of 15 drones overnight. In Ukrainian attacks, one civilian was injured after Russian air defenses shot down three missiles over the country's Belgorod region on Monday. Meanwhile, one civilian was killed in the Luhansk region after stepping on an unidentified explosive device. One civilian was also injured in Donetsk after stepping on an anti-personnel mine in the region. Scott, thank you for the update with the Ukraine war. As we look at the spins, the pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Artyomovsk is a strategically significant transport hub and logistical center for the Ukrainian army. Ukraine's forces have already sustained huge losses, including several of their best brigades, fighting to keep control of the city. And Moscow's forces now have the upper hand on the ground. Artyomovsk will be a key victory for Russia in the wider battle for control of the Donbass. And the anti-Russian narrative comes from Voice of America. Even if Russian forces do gain control of Bakhmut, it would not represent a decisive shift in the war. The development would be much more of a symbolic than strategic victory, and while Russia continues to funnel troops and resources into Bakhmut in the hope of being able to publicize some positive news about the invasion, Kyiv is making a more considered strategic assessment of its troops' position in view of the wider conflict. And lastly, we have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2023. Slim chances. Yeah. Ukraine said it shot down 13 of 15 drones overnight. So not only did we shoot down 13 of them, we know there were two more. We missed them, <laughs> but we know exactly what was up there. I wonder how Absolutely. accurate that is. But. Absolutely. Why would they make all this information public? It's interesting. It's it's the other side is saying that the other people are going to make an attack. If they knew that, why would they let them know that you know that they know that you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Who's on first? That's <laughs> In our next story, Taiwan warns that China's military may make a sudden entry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNA, Newsweek, Taipei Times, and Fox News. Taiwan Defense Minister Chu Ko-cheng on Monday warned that the country is on alert for a sudden entry 
by the Chinese military into regions close to its territory amid rising military tensions across the Taiwan Strait. While Taiwan hasn't reported any incidents of Chinese forces entering its contiguous zone, an area 44.4 kilometers or 24 nautical miles from its coast, Chu alleged that China is making such preparations. Last year, Taiwan shot down a civilian drone that entered its airspace near an islet off the Chinese coast. Taiwan has consistently vocalized its right to self-defense and counterattack if the Chinese military enters its territory. At China's annual two-session legislative meeting Sunday, Beijing unveiled a 7.2% increase in its defense budget to 1.55 trillion Chinese yuan, or 224 billion U.S. dollars, for 2023. Chu claims that the move suggests China is preparing its military to act in the future if necessary. The news comes after outgoing Chinese Premier Li Keqiang also stated at the meeting that the CCP resolutely opposes an independent Taiwan and wishes for a peaceful unification. Last month, CIA Director William Burns claimed that Chinese President Xi Jinping called for his military to be ready to invade Taiwan by 2027, a potential move condemned by the U.S. Since self-governed Taiwan split from mainland China in 1949 following the country's civil war, Beijing claims Taiwan as part of its territory. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from the Taipei Times. Taiwan is continuing to receive support from the West in a joint stand of contempt against the CCP's actions toward the state. Just as China's behavior concerning Hong Kong and its management of COVID has destroyed previous assumptions of its peaceful intentions, Beijing's belligerence and Xi Jinping's reckless actions, such as its defense spending, reveal its stance on the island which becomes more internationally unpopular by the day. China Daily gives us a pro-China narrative. The hyperbole surrounding China's defense budget increase is baseless scaremongering. Despite economic slowdowns, the defense spending of numerous countries continue to grow. The U.S., for instance, has increased its own in an attempt to check China's rise. The West should remember that the Taiwan question is an internal dispute in which Beijing is seeking a peaceful solution, not a hegemony like other international actors. And the Metaculous Prediction community brings us another nerd narrative, where they predict there's a 5% chance that China will recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan by 2050. Wouldn't surprise me if whatever the next international conflict is, is a you know sudden sneak attack. I think this Ukraine business has set that playbook in stone. They've set the precedent, that's for sure. And the UK lockdown files indicate that the health minister wanted to frighten Britons into compliance. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, The Evening Standard, The National, The Telegraph, and NBC News. Former UK health minister Matt Hancock suggested to an aide that they frighten the pants off everyone about COVID to ensure compliance with government restrictions. Leaked text messages published in The Telegraph revealed over the weekend. The message came in December 2020 when the government feared backlash to its plan to reverse a policy that would have relaxed the rules over the Christmas period. The aide suggested to Hancock, rather than doing too much forward signaling, we can roll pitch with the new strain. Hancock added, we frighten the pants off everyone with the new strain, to which the aide said, yep, that's what will get proper behavior change. Hancock then asked when they could deploy the announcement of a new COVID variant which was publicly announced a day later. In a separate conversation in January 2021, when restrictions were still in place, Simon Case, head of the civil service, suggested to Hancock that minor amendments to the rules would be seen as ridiculous. Instead, he suggested ramping up messaging 
in which the fear-slash-guilt factor was vital. Texts also reveal that Hancock tried to sack Sir Jeremy Farrar of the Independent Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies for questioning proposals to shut down Public Health England and replace it with a body to be run by a friend of Hancock. Hancock reportedly also ignored the advice of Sir Christopher Whitty, England's chief medical officer, to reduce quarantine times with testing from 14 days to 7 because it would imply we've been getting it wrong and that the period was too long all along. Hancock was ultimately forced to resign in June of 2021 when pictures released by the Sun newspaper showed the married man kissing a senior aide in violation of his own department's guidelines for social distancing and avoiding physical contact. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a couple of spins beginning with a left narrative, and it's coming from The Guardian. While the public is right to demand answers to questions on whether the government acted appropriately during the COVID pandemic, the leak of these messages leads to a one-sided inquisition by those that were against lockdowns. What we need is an independent inquiry that can tackle these questions accurately and fairly with proper public health context in mind. And the right narrative comes from The Spectator. What we see from the release of these text messages is that the government was consciously using irrational fear as a tool to make the public compliant with its COVID policies. Knowingly crippling the psyches of Britons for the sole purpose of retaining a public policy is inexcusable. Where were the ministerial voices of caution throughout this disastrous public health experiment? You know, society has jumped the shark when a uh, public official is, uh, you know, having some sort of physical relations with his aide. And the big problem is it was violating social distancing. Hence, scaring the pants off of people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) In our next story, Iran agrees to more joint nuclear site inspections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Guardian. Politico, Reuters, Iran International, and Financial Times. On Saturday, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Rafael Grossi, announced that Iran had agreed to expand joint inspections at the Fordow fuel enrichment plant and reinstall surveillance cameras and other monitoring equipment. The IAEA director stated that Tehran agreed to increase inspections at the facility by 50%, after the watchdog reported that up to 83.7% enriched uranium particles had been detected at the underground nuclear plant. He also confirmed that no production or accumulation of uranium had occurred at this enrichment level. According to a joint statement from the IAEA and the Iran Atomic Energy Agency issued on Saturday, Tehran voiced its readiness to maintain collaboration and offer further information and access to address the outstanding safeguards issues related to its disputed nuclear activities. Returning from his two-day visit to Iran, Grassi said during a press conference that Iran is supposed to grant access to information, locations, and people related to its nuclear activities. The modalities will be finalized in follow-up talks in the near future, Grassi added. The Iranian Atomic Energy Agency, however, denied reports that Tehran had given the UN's atomic watchdog access to individuals involved in its nuclear program and said there had also been no agreement on placing new cameras at Iran's nuclear facilities. Last year, Iran removed more than 20 cameras and other monitoring devices from its nuclear power plants in response to a resolution adopted by IAEA members criticizing Tehran for its nuclear operations. By 2019, a year after the Trump administration unilaterally terminated the Iran nuclear deal, Iran had resumed its nuclear activities. 
All right, we have a pro-Iran spin from the Tehran Times. While the U.S. and Israel are hyping the alleged Iranian nuclear threat to justify imposing new sanctions, Grassi's recent trip to Iran underscores Tehran's willingness to cooperate constructively with the IAEA. This is all the more remarkable given that Tehran has been transparent about the peaceful nature of its nuclear program, while Tel Aviv has refused to sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and doesn't allow inspections of its nuclear activities. Only if the IAEA maintains its autonomy and neutrality against those who seek to obstruct dialogue with Iran will there be a chance for fruitful negotiations. The anti-Iran spin is coming from Iran International. While Iran pretends to be engaged in constructive talks with the IAEA, it has advanced its uranium enrichment program behind the scenes to a point where it can produce enough material for a nuclear weapon within a few weeks. And if Tehran were to actually make the decision to secretly produce nuclear weapons, it would push the IAEA past its operational limits. Moreover, that Iran has become an incalculable security risk is underscored by Iran's support for Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The international community must increase pressure to bring Tehran to its senses and lay the groundwork for credible talks with the IAEA. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon by 2030. You certainly don't want to stir the pot in that situation. Things will start to blow up. Yeah, yeah, it's a very volatile porridge. Yeah. <laughs> Confusingly, there's two different IAEAs. This whole this whole thing's a quagmire. <laughs> 35 are arrested after clashes at the proposed Atlanta Police Training Center. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Decaturish, Reuters, Axios, and Forbes. Amid ongoing environmental and civil rights demonstrations, Atlanta police arrested 35 people on Sunday after protesters allegedly entered and set fire to a construction site of the new Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, dubbed Cop City, by its opponents. Organizers and supporters say the clashes occurred during a music festival, alleging there was indiscriminate police violence against Stop Cop City festival goers. In contrast, police have stated violent agitators used the cover of a peaceful protest to launch their attack. The construction site has been the scene of growing tensions between protesters opposed to both what they consider the militarization of the police and the center's development in the South River Forest, known as the Lungs of Atlanta. According to DeKalb County officials, a group of protesters left the event only a short distance away from the 85-acre police and fire training facility armed with items including fireworks, stones, Molotov cocktails, and other devices. Besides police militarization, opposition groups argue the construction will have a negative impact on more than 1,000 acres of the forest. In response, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens last week announced a task force to address the concerns. The year-long standoff has also led to the killing by law enforcement of an activist, after which, in January, demonstrators lit police cars on fire and smashed building windows near the site. Atlanta police say they and other agencies have a multi-layered strategy that includes reaction and arrest as protests continue. Thank you, Scott. Let's look at the two spins. And the first one is a left narrative coming from DefendTheAtlantaForest.org. The Atlanta Police Department claims it needs this center to help train police to protect the community while simultaneously shooting and arresting demonstrators. This is simply another example of a bloated government choosing to militarize law enforcement at the expense of the taxpayers who are terrorized by these so-called public safety officers. 
This is a microcosm of the national trend of wasting money on security while neglecting the people and land they're supposed to protect. Fox News brings us the right narrative. There is a dire need to boost police morale and resources in the wake of the 2020 George Floyd protests, which is why the duly elected city council voted to approve this new training center. Protesters have also been anything but peaceful. Having thrown homemade bombs and fired at cops, officers have justifiably responded with equal force and arrests. This is about protecting the safety of the public and building capacity among law enforcement public servants. Turning our attention to Pakistan as nine security officers are killed in a suicide attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, BBC News, DW, CNN and Reuters. According to authorities in Pakistan's southwestern Baluchistan province, a suicide bomber attacked a truck transporting police personnel on Monday, killing at least nine and wounding 13 others. The officers were reportedly returning to the provincial capital of Quetta after policing a festival. Pictures from the scene depict a crushed and overturned police truck. Senior police official Abdul Hai Amir told reporters that the attacker, who was riding a motorcycle, rammed his vehicle into the back of the truck before detonating the explosives. The Tariq-e-Jihad Pakistan, or TJP, a newly formed militant group reportedly seeking to, quote, establish an Islamic system in Pakistan via armed jihad, claimed responsibility for the blast. However, Pakistan's interior ministry hasn't yet confirmed the TJP's responsibility. Though the TJP claimed responsibility, Balak nationalists and separatists have been waging an insurgency in the region against the government for decades, accusing it of exploiting Balochistan's rich gas and mineral resources. Pakistan's security situation has worsened in the last year. The Tariq-e-Taliban, or TTP, an armed Islamist group associated with the Afghan Taliban, has upped its attacks against government forces after the breakdown of talks in November. Last month, a TTP attack killed five people in a police compound in Karachi after a bombing at a police mosque in Peshawar killed more than 80 officers in January. Narrative A comes from the dispatch. In a cruel twist of fate, Pakistan is under threat from groups they once vocally supported in their fight against the U.S. Afghanistan has failed to take steps against militants, and Pakistan is helpless against insurgents launching attacks from their Taliban-controlled neighbor. They have reaped what they've sown regarding support for rogue terror groups. More innocent civilians are being victimized as a result of this foreign policy blunder. Narrative B is coming from Indian Express. The situation with Afghanistan and their support or indifference to attacks originating from their country is a reality that cannot be wished away. It would be foolish to disengage with Kabul over the security situation, as it's clear that a solution can only come from cooperation between the two nations. Pakistan will continue the fight against insurgents the best it can. While there is disappointment that Afghanistan is not taking measures against militant groups, Pakistan's fight is against terrorism, not Afghanistan. Uh, eat crackers in bed, you get crumbs, right? Exactly. That's what I've been trying to tell those people. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's getting lost in translation that's the it problem Scott. yeah it, yeah that's true it's not yeah that's the problem that's the issue yep trump delivers a cpac speech here are the facts as agreed upon by reuters yahoo news the hill daily mail axios and u.s news and world report former president donald trump on saturday served as the closing speaker at the annual conservative political action conference or cpac which featured speeches from several ardent Trump supporters and cheering crowds in Washington. 
Trump spoke on a variety of topics, including immigration, crime, the economy, and U.S. foreign commitments, topics he has focused on since his first run for the presidency in 2016. Trump rallied against both the Democratic and Republican parties, telling his supporters, In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. He also spent a notable amount of time criticizing other prominent Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, former House Speaker Paul Ryan, strategist Karl Rove, and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Trump also criticized President Joe Biden and his administration. Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, were among the Trump allies who spoke. Gates said the FBI, CIA, and other intelligence agencies should be defunded if they don't get back on our side. And Green lambasted Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. A straw poll found that 62% of attendees want Trump to win the Republican nomination, more than 40 points ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is generally considered Trump's strongest competition at this stage in the race, though the governor hasn't yet announced his candidacy. Those were the facts, and there are three spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from Independent. Trump's speech, like every other one before it, was filled with lies and misinformation. He's incapable of speaking without uttering blatant falsehoods, which is unsurprising from a candidate who degrades and ridicules anyone who stands against him, even those within his own party, a self-sabotaging strategy that confirms he's unfit to lead the nation. And the pro-Trump narrative comes from Breitbart. Trump is continuing his political insurgency against the establishment and elite while making America great again. Though he uses strong language, everyone knows the country is approaching a point of no return, and he's the ideal candidate to steer it away from the edge, as seen by the overwhelming support he received during the event. Fox News gives us a Republican narrative. Trump has his own style, and that's just part of how he plays politics. Regardless, the CPAC, overwhelmed by Trumpsters, isn't an accurate representation of GOP sentiment, which is moving on from him and should look to new young talent like Ron DeSantis. Though Trump did plenty of good things for his country, ultimately, he should step aside for this upcoming election. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there is a 38% chance that Trump will win the presidency in 2024 if he runs against Biden. News coming from California as they end business with Walgreens over an abortion pill issue. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, NBC, Associated Press, and Washington Post. On Monday, California Governor Gavin Newsom tweeted that the state would cease doing business with Walgreens after the pharmacy chain announced that it wouldn't dispense abortion pills in 20 Republican states. Walgreens made the announcement on Thursday saying it wouldn't dispense mifeprestone, a pill often used for abortions following a letter from the state's Republican attorneys general explaining that the company could be breaking the law by dispensing the pill by mail. The letter came just a couple of months after the Food and Drug Administration loosened restrictions to allow pharmacies to obtain certification to distribute the pill. Previously, it could only be obtained at specialty offices and clinics. Medication abortion makes up more than 50% of all U.S. abortions. Among the states that joined in the letter were Kentucky, Mississippi, South Dakota, Texas, where abortion is illegal, and Alaska, Florida, Iowa, and Montana, where it's legal. A spokesperson said Walgreens intends to become certified to dispense mifepristone, where it is legal to do so in the future. 
This comes at a time when mifepristone is the subject of much legal wrangling, including lawsuits from a manufacturer of the pill and a physician in a response to bans in North Carolina and West Virginia. A lawsuit by the conservative group Alliance Defending Freedom attempting to end mifepristone's FDA approval is also in progress. Okay, we have a democratic narrative from Alternet. Republicans are stooping to bullying in order to expand abortion bans beyond their legal reach. It's going to be difficult for pharmacies to deal with threats like these and navigate areas where state and federal laws conflict. But they should know that the Justice Department has their backs against any legal action taken by these attorneys general or lawmakers. The Republican narrative comes from Town Hall. It's reassuring to see Walgreens responding to the concerns of pro-life citizens and states advocating for the right of unborn children. The Biden administration might think mail-order pills are a way around state laws, but that just means states will have to hold companies accountable, as they are doing. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 4% chance that abortion will be banned nationally in the U.S. before the year 2030. Our final story, nearly 200 nations agree to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by UN News, CNN, the European Commission, Al Jazeera, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and BBC News. On Saturday, international delegates at the Intergovernmental Conference on Marine Biodiversity of Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction struck a landmark agreement and pledged to protect at least 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. The High Seas Treaty calls for a legal framework to establish marine protected areas share the benefits of genetic resources of the world's oceans, and assess environmental impacts to ensure commercial activities are carried out sustainably. Nearly 200 countries agreed to the framework. The treaty must be ratified by 60 countries for it to come into force. In a statement, the EU pledged 40 million euros, or 42 million U.S. dollars, as part of a global ocean program to facilitate rapid ratification and early implementation. The negotiations to reverse marine biodiversity losses and ensure sustainable development had been held up for 15 years over disagreements on funding, transfer of technology, and fishing rights. The pact comes as marine biodiversity has declined at unprecedented rates. The IUCN, or International Union for Conservation of Nature, estimates that 41% of threatened species are also affected by climate change. The 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea established the so-called High Seas, two-thirds of international waters where all countries have a right to fish, ship, and do research. But only 1.2% of these waters are protected, which leaves marine life at risk of extinction due to climate change, shipping traffic, and overfishing. All right, those were the facts, and our first spin is Narrative A coming from BBC News. The agreement is a step in the right direction and has come just in time. The historic treaty, which finally establishes a legal mechanism to set up protected areas on the high seas, is crucial to enforce the 30 by 30 pledge made by countries at the UN Biodiversity Conference in December, which would preserve 30% of Earth's land area by 2030. It can help reverse biodiversity losses, prevent possible impacts of deep sea mining, ensure sustainable economic development, safeguard marine ecosystems, and allow humanity to transition towards a nature-positive world. Narrative B comes from the Washington Post. Though it is undoubtedly a significant milestone for conserving our oceans, countries still need to meet goals set in similar treaties in the past. 
Moreover, the treaty must first be ratified, and then it only enters into force once enough countries have signed up and legally passed it in their own nations. The challenge also lies in mobilizing funds, as no exact funding amount was included in the text, and finding ways to protect international waters, as most areas are highly inaccessible. There's a long way to go in seeing this agreement fully implemented. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.